0: This is Chapter 18 of the WCBS Author Talks Podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Welcome to a special episode. We've left the comfort of our studios and are broadcasting from the Book Expo at the Javits Center here in New York City. This is the largest annual book trade fair in the United States, and it's where publishers, booksellers, and authors come together to celebrate storytelling in all its forms. Our guests this week include Beach Read royalty Jane Green, sci-fi writer Cory Doctorow, and the one and only James Patterson. In Jane Green's latest Beach Read, The Sunshine Sisters, three sisters who've drifted apart are forced together when their dying mother summons them home. Before hosting a lunch at the expo, for
1: which she baked, Jane Green visited our studios and spoke with our pet Farnack. I'm honored to be here, it's my first time actually, in a 20-year career. Um, This is my first time at BEA.
2: Now you're a a, a local girl now, you're uh, based in Westport, Connecticut, and uh, you were born
1: in Britain. Yes, I was born in London, um, and I've been here for 16 years. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm naturalized. I'm an American. My kids are American. I know I still sound like I stepped off the boat yesterday, but um, that's lovely just- accent. Thank that's you. Lovely. Thank you.
2: Now, the Book Expo, you're a busy lady today. Not only are you here with us, but uh, later on at the bu- Book Expo, you are going to be making an appearance and... You're cooking, I understand. Yes, well, I actually
1: cooked yesterday. So I I cooked these little um, chest tarts and I cooked 50 of them. And I was going to cook extra because um, I thought, well, if I, I'll say to anyone, if anyone wants to show up at Book Expo and have a taste, they're really, really good. But then some burnt, so I had to use up my extras. Um, but yes, yeah, so I'm cooking and I'm serving lunch. Now,
2: are you a chef slash author or an author slash chef? Uh, are you a better author you think than a chef or are you great
1: at both <laughs> I did go to culinary school so I am I so I describe myself as a, as a slightly trained chef cuz I never worked in the restaurant business um, but I wish I had actually and I still think at some point I may I may do so if nothing else other than to inform a, a book I sort of feel like that would be a great experience for me but I but I am a cook um, and which comes first I'm not sure. I think they're both they're both ways of me expressing my creativity and both equally important.
2: Now the Sunshine Sisters, such a such a great beach read. Now you are the queen of beach summer beach read books.
1: Well thank you. I, I think I'm I think I'm probably one of them. I they used to call me the Queen of Chiclets, so I mean I, as I always said, the queen of anything is fine with me, but I think there are there are many that, that are really wonderful at, at good, well-written, escapist reads.
2: So tell me a little thumbnail sketch of what The Sunshine Sisters is about. Yeah. Um, it's the story of
1: a, a former actress who is a selfish, self-absorbed, narcissistic woman doesn't have a maternal bone in her body, but ends up with three daughters that she really doesn't know how to mother. And she's very difficult with them. And they grow up estranged from her and estranged from each other. We see them throughout their childhoods. And then we come to present day. And um, the mother who is Ronnie Sunshine is diagnosed with a terminal disease. And she calls each of her daughters home to be with her and to uh, to um, enact her final wishes and they're all going through these crazy things in their lives. None of them want to see each other. They don't want to see their mother, but they end up coming back together and uh, discovering whether blood is thicker than water after all.
2: How did you get to uh, write about ALS, which is what uh, Ronnie Sunshine, the terminal illness that she yeah. she has?
1: Um, I, You know, I, I played with... with A number of things i mean i can't the truth is it's not a book that has a very strong als storyline um and i did think well should it be alzheimer's what should it be but i there are a couple of reasons why als spoke to me and the first is um that ronnie is so vain that the idea that her body would shut down while her mental faculties were still all there she would still be exactly who she always was she just wouldn't be able to do what she did and and to live the life she had that that seemed to fit with the character um and then actually i have um a demyelinating um neuropathy which is a chronic autoimmune disease that i live with um please god it's it's not going to end up in a wheelchair. I'm, I'm touching wood somewhere. Um, yeah, you can touch your head. There you oh. go, touch wood. Um, but, but, wood yeah. <laughs> but, the, but because of that, I have a number of really wonderful neurologists in my life. And, uh, and you know, I know a lot about sort of neuropathies and nerve diseases. And, and so I thought, well, this is, this is something I can sort of easily explore. I was being lazy.
2: <laughs> well, very a very interesting uh, uh, illness to uh, for Ronnie yeah. Sunshine to have. Yeah, and there also is something for everybody with each of the the sisters. Whether yeah. you're you have impulse control issues or weight issues or whatever yeah. somebody has, or if you're Ronnie. God forbid. Yeah. <laughs> there was something to relate to for everyone.
1: Well that you know, when I when I write my books, I never want to write anything that's that's dark and heavy and pushes people away. You know, they're coming out in summer. I think for a summer beach read you want great characters that you feel like you know. You want a storyline that you can relate to or characters that you can relate to. And each of these sisters is so different, but there is something that's relatable in all of them.
2: <laughs> and uh- do you have something else marinating now or how do you work are you on the the next story or are you going to let this one sit for a while? well unfortunately there's no rest for the wicked so um the beach house
1: was a book i wrote a few years mm-hmm. ago which is becoming a movie so i've oh, just finished the um finished sort of editing the first draft of the script of that and exciting. it's very exciting and i'm about a third of the way through my new book which has no title i can't I can't come up with the title. I'm sort of struggling. But um, and that's these um, women who decide to go off and, and live, they all find themselves on their own midlife for one reason or another divorce or death or, and uh, they decide to go off and and live in a sort of commune together. Mm -hmm. So um, if anyone has any ideas, please get in touch.
0: By the way, I got to try those tarts that Jane was talking about. They were delicious. If Book Expo is for the book professionals, then BookCon, which happened over the weekend, is for the fans. Sci-fi writer Cory Doctorow was among the authors participating in panels and signing autographs. Our Rob Holly recently caught up with him to chat about his newest book called Walk Away.
3: First, tell me how this story came to you.
4: You know, stories coalesce out of a lot of different things. I I have been writing uh, this popular weblog, Boing Boing, with my friends for 15 years, and I throw all the interesting things that seem like they're part of something bigger there. And occasionally they'll like glom together and sort of nucleate and crystallize into a bigger idea. There wasn't like one nucleus, but you know, Rebecca Solnit wrote this book about how people are generally very good in times of crisis, but we remember them being very wicked, called A Paradise Built in Hell. And Thomas Piketty wrote this amazing book, uh, Capital in the 21st Century, about how even fair market economies eventually just make people rich because they were rich instead of making them rich because they did something amazing. And, you know, those, along with many other things, Occupy and so on, they all pull together to make me want to reimagine what kind of future we might head towards.
3: Now, I focus on tech most of the time, and I, and I always love hearing from authors who put a lot of technology in their stories. When you were imagining that future, how do you get yourself into that future scape of technology to make it seem believable and relatable to
4: today, but still have it make sense in the future? So a lot of the technology that's in there is stuff that that really is more or less here. I just imagine us using it better, right? I, I just imagine, you know, in the same way that, Star Wars, although it's not a very technically rigorous story, why the hell does an r R2-D2 have a voice chip? Um, Star Wars uh, w- was one of the first places where we saw technology that was scuffed. You know, technology that, that had wear marks on it. And so I just try to like kind of imagine how all this stuff would rub together and what it would look like after it was a little beaten up and broken.
3: I jumped into the book, and I, and I follow tech, and when I started reading, I, I found myself casting around wondering, what's he talking about? Is that intentional? Do you want to throw people into the deep end to kind of make them swim a
4: bit? Well, there's a little bit of that. I also feel like, um, like- uh, science fiction is often a, a game with the reader and the writer, where the writer writes about a future that the reader doesn't live in, as though everybody knew how everything worked, because otherwise there's a lack of plausibility. It's you know you get you end up with the Picard trap of having to have one character who's a super enthusiastic uh, hobbyist of some esoteric period hundreds of years before, and who just conveniently relates everything they do back to what it was like in that long ago past. It would be like hanging around with someone who just insisted on finding parallels to ancient Rome for everything you did it's you know be a bit tedious but the other thing science fiction writers do is they they just include you as Joe Walton says they give you little bits they drop hints and from the hints you construct the world that the hints must have come from and I love playing that game as the reader and so playing it as a writer is always fun too
3: I've seen this book variously described. I think Ars Technica described it as full of big ideas. And then I think I read an article on Tor that said it, it chewed the one big idea and was more about a lot of small ideas. I'm not sure where I land, but where do
4: you land? So I think it is about a big idea, but uh, like a lot of science fiction, you have one central technological phenomenon and you make the whole world turn on it. But that is so obviously... Uh, a fake that you then add some garnish to, to flesh out the rest of the world. And so the one technology that, that everything turns on here is the way networks let us instead of merely uh, helping us get what we want, they help us find things that we didn't know we want or, or find ways to, to substitute one thing for another. That like if what we want is to play a video game against someone else who's fun and not a jerk. Uh, as opposed to like playing a video game with a specific friend. Technology can help us find that in an instant around the clock. And so that that idea scaled up to the level of a civilization where when traffic is bad, you find something to do that doesn't involve going cross town that's every bit as fun as what you were about to go cross town for uh, is a big technological idea. It's a way of using networks to coordinate ourselves in... That would like make our society unrecognizable and make it more like a, a a day of pleasure than a day of work, and then around it is all this window dressing of 3D printing and practical immortality and drones and mechas and airships and rail guns and you know machine learning and all the rest of it, which are all you know they contribute in some way to this other stuff, but they're they're also there to give it the verisimilitude of, you know, a shop window that just doesn't have a mannequin in it, but maybe has a little side table and a bud vase and you know, it's, it's fun to talk about this as a book of ideas and a book with a lot of technology in it. But you know, the thing that science fiction is more than anything else is it's an adventure genre. It's a pulp genre. It's a genre that's meant to be read for pleasure. And I don't want anyone to get the impression that because this book is written by someone who's politically active and is thinking about politics when he's writing it, that it's not. You know, at its core, a story of people running around doing cool things with technology, having adventures, chasing bad guys, being chased by bad guys, having epic battles and and all of the other things that we love about our Pulp Fiction. And so it's a fun novel.
3: It'd be really easy to someone coming into this book to pick it up and say, oh, dystopian novel. How would you describe it?
4: I call it an optimistic disaster novel. So the thing that differentiates a disaster from a catastrophe is whether when disaster strikes, people rise to the occasion or turn on each other. And this is a novel about people who are rising to the occasion. So, you know, disasters come and go. You can organize your society very well, and you'll still be subject to, you know, belligerent neighboring states and, you know, unexpected mutating microbes that, that you know, killed 80 million people or whatever. Whether or not you weather that with grace and resilience is what makes a society good or bad. You know, the, well, there's one thing the subprime crisis taught us. It's that it's really easy to make a banking system that works well but fails badly.
3: As you were going through this, doing whatever
4: research you did, did anything surprise you? You know, I, I, I do it backwards. I write about all the things that I find interesting, and then I figure out what novel I've been researching. I I very rarely do it the other way around where I have a novel. I mean, I wrote one novel set in China and India and went and spent a bunch of time in China and India for it. But I, I uh, mostly start with the things that seem alive and interesting uh, in the world and that I'm, that I'm paying attention to because of their intrinsic interestingness mm-hmm. and see what stories I can tell about them. And I rarely go the other way around.
3: Does that approach speed up the actual writing for you? Because basically you've been doing the legwork in your day-to-day life.
4: Yeah, I think it really does. And I think it's part of, you know, I get this question, like, how can you write so much while doing lots of other things? And the answer is uh, I find a not very large block of time every day, 10, 15 minutes, 20 minutes half an hour and I write a page or you know at the under times where I've been a little less busy four pages but a page a day it's a novel a year and uh The trick to writing a page in the 20 minutes you've got is to know what's going on that page. And in part, that's having all the research pre-done because it's the stuff you're interested in. And then there's some stupid writer tricks around the margins, like, you know, finishing in the middle of a sentence so that you can type a few words the next day and pick it up without having to face a blank page, you know. And, you know, the other piece is just knowing that... um, Although there's days when you feel like you're writing beautifully and days when you feel like you're writing terribly that like six months later, you don't know which words you wrote when. And that like it's really about about just powering through those days where you you feel like you're doing it badly because that has more to do with your blood sugar than your words.
3: When people put this book down, when they've gotten through it all, what do you want
4: for them? Not necessarily what kind of message are you trying to send,
3: but what do you want for them?
4: apart from wanting to read the rest of my backlist, uh, oh, that goes without saying. right. Uh, what I want them to do, having finished it is to, uh, have in the backs of their mind, the intuition that the next time they find themselves in crisis, the thing they should do is figure out how they could help the people around them and look to them for help, rather than running for the hills. Because disasters come and go, the people who've got a bug out bag and plan to weather the disasters in the hills are not the people who are gonna fix things so that we overcome the disaster. It sounds like you're much more of an optimist than a pessimist. I am hopeful rather than optimistic. I don't know what will happen, but I hope that we can make it better. I think that we can take affirmative steps that improve the likelihood of the outcome. That doesn't mean that I think the outcome will necessarily be good, but it means that I think that we are not hopeless in the world and uh, liable to do whatever the world uh, sends our way, rather than unable to, Rather that we have the ability to steer. You know, that we have a rudder.
3: Let's talk a little bit about the audiobook. You structured it in a different way than the traditional one reader play in many roles.
4: Well, so the novel is a novel of multiple points of view. And so we got multiple readers. Uh, And then because the points of view are fairly appreciable sections, we have Will Wheaton reading one character. She froze him with a look. Haven't you figured it out? Giving money away doesn't solve anything. We have Amber Benson from Buffy reading another. My
0: dad knows the guy in the next yacht is a bastard who'll slit his throat and steal his empire because my dad is a bastard who'll slit that guy's throat and steal
4: his empire. We have Amanda Palmer from the Dresden Dolls reading a third.
0: Natalie couldn't help herself. Dis cracked up. A computer program that could laugh. Life was weird. Laugh it up, meat sickle.
4: Uh, some audiobook superstars who are, you know, very well loved, like uh Justine Eyer and uh uh Lisa Renee Pitts and Gabrielle DeQueer and and Miran Myron Willis, they all read different characters. Mm -hmm. And it makes for a really great book and it and it spares some of the distraction, I think, you know, of having like a male reader reading on extended passage that's in the point of view of a female character. You know? Um, it was directed by Gabrielle de Queer, who also reads on it, from Skyboat Studios in Los Angeles. And she is a brilliant director and really had a sense of how this could all come together in her head when she started. And I, I produced it, so uh, you know, I helped with the casting but Gabrielle really figured out how to make it pull together. Going in, did you know you wanted to do something different? I knew I wanted it to have my favorite readers on it. I I definitely knew that I wanted to have Will and Amber on it, because they are my favorite readers. Will's read a couple of my other audiobooks. I made him a minor character in a book, and then he was the reader of it, and so there's a great studio i take you can find if you search around where he gets to the section where he has to read a character saying his own lines, saying his lines, himself reading, saying his own lines, and he just can't do it for the first three or four tries, but he's a trooper. I actually got the idea because there's a, a great writer named Ernie Klein who wrote a book called Ready Player One. And, and in Ready Player One, he just drops casually that uh, every five years they elect a new president and vice president of the internet, and as this guy does every five years, he votes to re-elect me as the president and Will as my vice president. And, uh, you know, I laughed when I first saw that. But uh, Will apparently read the audiobook cold, never having read the book, and gets to this point where he announces that he's the vice president of the Internet. And um, you can hear it. He, he, I think he did it in one take, but you can hear it in his voice that there's a certain like, and Will Wheaton as vice president? <laughs> it's my good. It was a very delicious little moment.
0: Our next guest really doesn't need an introduction. James Patterson has sold more than 350 million books worldwide and is the current Guinness World Record holder for the most number one New York Times bestsellers. He found some time in his busy book expo schedule to talk with me about his latest young adult book as well as some of the other projects he's working on. You're one of the busiest men in publishing, You have a lot going on. Tell us about your newest release, though, Crazy House.
5: Uh, Crazy House is is a YA young adult. Um, I did a series called Maximum Ride, which is one of the biggest series I've ever done. And then I I I didn't have a great idea for a while for a a young adult series. And then Crazy House came along, and I just love this idea. It's two twins. Twins are always twos. Twins, we should say. And, um, um... they grow up. It's it's, a, it's kind of dystopian society, and the and the one girl, um, she she has a bag over her head. She goes into this, and she's in prison. She's never been tried. She's never done anything that she's aware of to you know be guilty of. She's in prison, and they put her on death row. And it's like, huh, you know. And the other twin, of course, wants to find her.
0: And like I said, you have a diz- dizzying array of releases coming out. How do you do it? Uh,
5: I, I don't think about it I love um, somebody said you're lucky if you find something you like to do and then it's a miracle if somebody will pay you to do it <clears throat> I'm sure that you know people watching listening whatever uh, know what I mean by that so you know I was just fortunate enough you know, I, 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 in my late teens early 20s I started writing loved it and eventually, um, I got to the point where I could. You know, my first book I actually published when I was twenty-five. It got turned down by thirty-one publishers. It then won an Edgar as the best first mystery in the country. So it's like, huh?
0: Did you keep those letters?
5: Um, I yeah. And occasionally, those those editors will send me bl- uh, things, uh, books to, to blurb, and I'm like, I remember you. You turned down my book back in. You know, <laughs>
0: So in ad- addition to all the writing, you're also teaching a master class now. How did that come about?
5: Uh, I was approached by a group a couple of years ago to do a two or three day. Uh, they they, uh, they filmed me just like this. And um, um, I said, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. And it, it really was it got huge. I mean, more people have taken my class than our students at Harvard and Yale put together. So... Uh, and it's good. I mean, and, and the the um, uh, the response is real. I mean, the, the approval rating is like astronomical. So it really turned out great. And you know, Kevin Spacey did one, and Serena Williams did one, Dustin Hoffman did one. So it's all you know, really. It's a nice company that I'm keeping in the Master Class. It's all, you have to go online, Master Class.
0: And one of the cool things you're doing with it is hosting this co-author competition.
5: Yeah, this is the second year. We did one last year, co author uh, and a woman from Pennsylvania. It was was thousands of entries. And then I worked with her and we published, uh, we're going to publish actually one of her books. It's coming out in the summer. Um, And then we just, yesterday I just talked to the winner of this, and I told him that he was the winner. And it turns out he's an NCIS agent, which is kind of cool, working in Japan. Um, and happened to be in Washington when I called him yesterday on some top secret thing. Uh, so that was that was neat.
0: And speaking of co-authors, I know that later this year you're teaming up with former President Bill Clinton.
5: Well, I'm already teamed up with him. Yeah, uh, President Clinton and I are doing a novel called um, "The President Is Missing." Uh, it's a thriller. He likes suspense, and what really separates the book is it's a really good story about. A president who goes missing but he has so much insider information so it's it's not like any other thriller i think anybody will have will have read
0: you can't get a better source than a former president no
5: you know he's great to work with he 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 reads a lot he's a good storyteller on his own so he's been helpful in terms of the story uh and and obviously the insider stuff is invaluable
0: i can't wait to read that one yeah no
5: no it's very it's very cool
0: and as a CBS We're station, through. oh great! Yeah. It's a fall release, right?
5: No, it's going to be next summer. Next summer, yeah.
0: So, as a CBS station, I'd be re- remiss not to mention Zoo is coming back for another season.
5: Zoo is back at the end of June, and we actually have sold another series to CBS called Instinct with Alan Cumming, and that will be next January. Great! So we'll have two series on CBS, which is great. Yeah. And
0: are you very and involved? I will
5: tell you, CBS is the best terms of of working with people on television their notes are really terrific they're really smart so it's a pleasure um,
0: and you're very are you very involved with what happens with the script
5: yeah yeah i i get all the scripts i get all of the uh the dailies in terms of the filming and you know and the group is it's it's a good group the showrunner you know we've gotten friendly showrunners um so yeah i and i think actually the third season is going to be the best it's, uh, it just keeps getting, a lot of times with, with series, they start fading a little bit. This is actually getting stronger and stronger and stronger. So I'm very excited about the third season of Zoo.
0: Great. And one more thing that you're doing is if you weren't already doing enough, I noticed you write movie reviews on your website?
5: Yeah, yeah, we'll do them. I'm, I'm a movie I You know, when I first um, started writing you know, and, and doing nothing else, just to break the, the, the stream of thoughts I would go to the movies about four afternoons a week come two o'clock or three o'clock I go okay I have to stop thinking about this novel and I would just go to the movies so I became this movie Uh so I see everything and uh, and, I'll, and I'll write a you know a paragraph or so about whatever I think about various movies this is not a good movie period obviously uh, I just saw pirates and I despised it. Uh, the original I thought was quite funny and terrific, and this is just like, who, uh, who one, who's watching this, and two, I mean, I know, it was just not good, not good. So, and, I, and I like I like popcorn movies. Right. Yeah.
0: So finally, and this question may be a tough one. I don't know. It might be like asking you to choose your favorite child. But out of all the audiences that you write for, do you have a favorite?
5: Well, I, I, uh, you know, I'm I'm very partial to writing for children because it's so important to get them reading. Uh, and I know that if you, if you get kids enough books that they like I have an imprint at Little Brown Jimmy And our uh, mission is when a kid finishes a Jimmy book They'll say, please give me another book As opposed to, I hate reading And, and, and if, if kids get enough books in their hands where they go, I like that Then you'll, you'll, kids will read
0: And you've got a fan for life
5: yeah, I don't care about that as much as, honestly, I just want to get them reading. Because if if at-risk kids, if they don't become competent readers in middle school, how are they going to get through high school? You know, it really is, it's a matter of life and death with kids, for a lot of kids. I mean, you really have to get them reading. And it's and and parents, insofar as they can, have to take responsibility. You know, parents, they, they're not bashful about, you know, you have to eat with them family, or don't track mud on the living room rug, or here's how you throw a baseball. Same, same, they they have to get the kids reading. And if if they don't, they're really, they're putting the kids behind the eight ball.
0: Well, James Patterson, thank you so much for taking the time today.
5: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good, good. Go CBS.
0: That closes the book on this special chapter of the WCBS 880 Author Talks podcast, You can watch our interviews with Jane Green and James Patterson at facebook.com slash WCBS 880. And if you haven't already, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books.